Let's now open the scriptures, first of all, to Acts chapter 1. This is the well-known passage where um, it's actually Luke who wrote this book. Luke uh, tells us about the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the two places in scripture where we read that narrative at the end of the book of Luke. You find also a very short account of this. Here we get some more details about uh, Jesus' ascension and also the talks he had with his disciples around that time. So we will read Acts 1, uh, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of God. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So far we read from Acts 1. Now we also turn to Ephesians 1. One of Paul's letters. We are going to read Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15, and then through 2, chapter 7. 
Um, it's always very difficult to divide Paul's letters into uh, good reading sections. Um, I was tempted to read the whole thing, but I won't do that uh, today. Um, so we'll start in uh, 1 verse 19 and read through 2 verse 7. In a sermon I will focus mostly on verses 19 through 23, but also on the context around it. Ephesians 1 verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he works in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." So far we read from uh, this section. I'd just like to reread verses 19 to 23 um, because that's going to be the focus of our sermon. So starting in verse 19, uh, sorry, verse 17, um, Paul's prayer. Um, wait a second. Verse 19, that's where uh, we start our focus. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all.
congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, I pray for you, wrote Paul to the church in Ephesus. And Paul started many letters that way to encourage the churches that he had planted. And in this case, he has a lot to pray for. So much, in fact, that Paul's sentences here in Ephesians 1 grow long and complex as if there aren't even enough words to say everything that he wants to say. And what is it that Paul prays for? Verse 16, he says that, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. What does he pray for? Well, he prays that they may have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they may have an enlightened understanding so that they can see and, and understand and experience the gospel of Jesus, so that they do not just remember the words that Paul had spoken to them, but gain a deep understanding of the all-important truth. And then specifically in verse 18, he says, I, I want you to have Christian hope, a sense of, of the glorious and heavenly riches that the church will inherit because they belong to Jesus. And then in verse 19, Paul zooms in more specifically on what he really wants them to know. And that is, they want, he wants them to know and experience the amazingly great power of God that is at work in the church in those who believe in Jesus. And because of the way Paul piles so many glorious gospel words here on top of each other, there's the risk that we kind of drown in this very long sentence and just think, yeah, these are all beautiful church words, but what are you really saying here, Paul? Um, the translators of, for instance, the NIV take this sentence and chop it up for us a bit. Um, New King James Bible doesn't do that. So you may have to reread this passage a few times to really understand what he is saying. But let us uh, focus here on verse 19, where Paul zooms in on what, he, his, what the heart is of his prayer for this church here in Ephesus. There are two things that stand out in verse 19. First, it emphasizes how absolutely enormous and unlimited and amazingly great God's power is. And all of that unfathomable divine power and strength and might of God is directed toward the salvation of believers. And so the Christian church in Ephesus may feel weak and uncertain and powerless, but they shouldn't. If only the Lord would open their minds and their understanding, then they would see how strong they are if God is with them. So that's one focus in verse 19. Understand the great power of God and how that applies to you. And verse 19 also then introduces the keyword for the entire section that follows. That keyword key is translated here as working. In more modern versions, you may find the word operation, it means the same thing. Um, the working of his mighty power. In uh, the Greek language, a word is used that you actually know. 
It is the word energia, from which we get our word energy. Right? The working of God's power, the energia. That is the key word for what is to come in verses 20 and following. So God's power and strength are at work for the believers. And that working, that energia, takes two directions. And Paul works those out in further details in the rest of chapter 1 and also the beginning of chapter 2. And so first he says in verse 20, this energia, this working that God worked, um, he did that in the resurrection and in the ascension of Jesus Christ. That is where you can see the working of God's power, first and foremost. And then in chapter 2, he also talks about the effect of God's power in the lives of believers who were dead in sin and, um, in, and who were earthly in their lifestyle, but they too are raised from the dead and given heavenly identity. So we have God's working of power, working in two ways, in Jesus Christ and in his church. And today as we celebrate Ascension Day, two days late I would say, or three days late, but as we remember the Ascension of Christ, I want to focus with you especially on that first aspect, on the working of God's power in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so we will focus especially on Ephesians 1 verses 20 to 23. But Paul never wrote theology without a practical purpose, and so we also, as we study God's word in the ascension of Jesus Christ, also find a powerful and encouraging message about ourselves. The theme for the sermon is the mighty working of God's power. Uh, and we will see that this mighty working of God's power, first of all, seated Christ at his right hand, and second, seats us with him in the heavenly places. Now, traditionally, Easter has been the most important Christian holiday. And there's a good reason for that, because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest and most significant miracle of all of history. By raising Jesus from the dead, God did something completely new, changing the world forever. The power of death was destroyed. Jesus became the first human being with a glorified body made for eternal life. But after the resurrection, then also came the ascension. Jesus not only rose from the grave into a new life, but also from the earth into the heavenly places. In the New Testament, those two events are often mentioned together. They belong together, and you see that particularly here in Ephesians 1. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he did not go back to his old life. God did not merely undo his death. He did much more. Jesus was raised into a new and greater life, a life of glory. In 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead, he emphasized the radical difference 
between our current mode of living and the glorious life of the kingdom of God. Our current life in the footsteps of Adam is mortal and it's merely physical. But new life in the footsteps of Jesus is immortal and it's spiritual. It is like the difference between a seed dying in the earth and a plant springing to life. It's the difference between this current evil age and the world to come. And Paul has one favorite word that he uses to describe this new life. And he uses it five times here in Ephesians. And it's the word heavenly. Heavenly. Immediately at the beginning of the letter, Paul writes uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The blessing that Christians receive is spiritual blessing. It is heavenly blessing. It is not of this world. It is infinitely greater. This heavenly blessing is a fact, as Paul loudly proclaims in this letter. It's a fact that you have this heavenly blessing precisely because Jesus Christ has been raised into those heavenly places. Verse 20. In his resurrection... He received new and glorious human life and a body made for spiritual heavenly life. But in his ascension, he then entered that new life. He went to the place that belongs to it, leaving the old earth with all its evil and all its flaws and coming home to the kingdom life, which is spiritual and perfect and glorious. When God raised Jesus up from the grave and took him into heaven, that was all part of the same operation, the same working, that same most powerful activity of God in the history of the world. The complete transformation of the man Jesus Christ from the lowest depth of human misery in his death on the cross to the loftiest height of heavenly glory in the new life at God's right hand. For Jesus was not risked away to a remote corner of the heavenly realms, but to the heart of the heavens, seated at the right hand of God. That is the place of honor. There is no place uh, of state or, or state of greater glory than to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Well known is that text in Philippians 2 verse 9, where it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And that, at that point, when Paul writes that verse, he even invents a new word, a new word in Greek, literally, God super-exalted Jesus, because he ran out of words, apparently. Just to emphasize how absolutely glorious and exalted Jesus' uh, position in heaven is. Now, our text in verse 21 explains the importance of this exalted place in the heavenly realms. And again, you see how Paul just piles up all these words, principality and power and might and dominion. Words that are used to describe the kings and rulers on earth. But the, the Greek and Jewish thinkers in Paul's time also use these words to describe rulers outside of the earth, spiritual powers like angels and, and other spiritual influences. 
Whether you look at powerful people on earth or powerful spiritual beings in heaven or between heaven and earth, whatever they may be, Jesus on the throne is in a much higher position with more majesty and authority. So he is seated far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Above any name that is invoked. Anyone you could possibly want to pray to. Jesus is seated above that power as well. And in Philippians 2 he says that Jesus has been given the name above all names. And that includes also the reputation above all reputations. The status above all statuses. The importance above all importance. And so the all-important end point of God's powerful operation in the resurrection and in the ascension of Jesus is precisely this, that there is now a man on the throne of heaven who is in charge of absolutely everything, whether it's on earth or in heaven itself, whether it belongs to the current age of limitation and sin and rebellion or to the new spiritual age that is coming. This is the end point of God's great plan of history. And God announced this ages ago already in Psalm 110. I will make your enemy a footstool under your feet. Because the most powerful rulers of earth and even Satan himself will bow down deeply before the new king of heaven. So that he, as it were, could place his feet on their necks. A footstool for his feet. And that is the completed purpose of God's powerful operation in history. When he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and placed him on the throne. And that is what Paul wants the Ephesians and us also to see and to understand and to experience. As God gives us his wisdom and his revelation and as he enlightens the eyes of our understanding. Don't you see it? Don't you realize the profound truth? Jesus Christ has become the exalted king and therefore he is now in charge everywhere, in everything. Therefore there is ultimately no power to which we are beholden. No other power than his. There is no ruler on earth and no demon in hell that can freely harass us. All of the things that we have feared are now kept in check by the Lord Jesus. And if you let that sink in, and if you start living like that, that nothing can do anything to you except on the say-so of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't that make all the difference in the world? But there is another reason why Paul wants us to understand the working of God's power. A reason that is more personal, one that affects us even more directly. In Jesus' ascension, uh, Paul says here in uh, verse 22, God appointed him to be head over all things to the church. 
Yeah, the New King James says he gave him to be head. Uh, we would say he appointed him to be head over all things um, to the church. And we might have expected Paul to say that just as Jesus is king over all, so he is uh, in charge over the church, that just as rulers and powers and principalities subject to him, so also the church must subject uh, or submit to him. But that's not exactly what Paul is saying here. Rather, he presents the, the lordship of Jesus Christ as a gift to the church. It is for the sake of the church that Jesus has been placed on the throne of heaven. One commentator on this passage concludes, the church has authority and power to overcome all oppression because her leader and head is Lord of all. And that is not all. There's a much more intimate relationship between the exalted king on the throne of heaven and us, his church. The Lord who is over all is not only given to us, but he is directly connected to us. He even is in us. In verse 23, Paul also uses, or Paul uses two pictures to describe this. First, in verse 23, um, if, if Jesus Christ is the head of everything, then the church is his body. And the body is, of course, closely attached to the head. That's the idea of the words head and body. They belong together. The head directs the body. And in the same way, as the Lord of heaven, Jesus is now in charge of everything in the world, but he uses the church to implement his will on earth. We have work to do in the world. Not in a shy and subdued way, but as the body of Christ, which means we do the work directly on behalf of the great king. We are to proclaim the will of the Lord to the people around us in word and in deed. We present the gospel to poor and rich, to neighbors and to governments, and we live out a life of loving care as a testimony of Jesus' kingdom. So that is one thing here, verse 23. Christ is, or the church is the body of Jesus Christ. But a second, Paul also calls the church the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's a bit of a puzzling phrase, a bit abstract. And Bible scholars give different possible interpretations. I won't go into the details there. I'll just say this. Likely, the idea of this passage, that, Christ, that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all, um, the, the idea is that Jesus Christ, who, who fills the whole creation with the goodness of his rule, especially fills his body, the church, with his power and grace. And this means that the powerful working of God is energia, which raised Jesus from the dead and lifted him up to the throne of heaven, has not stopped working. It was not a one-time power. It continues just as powerfully and actively, right in the church of Christ. 
That was Paul's starting point in our passage. If you go back to verses 18 and 19, you read there that Paul says, I pray that you may, uh, that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Right? Paul wants us to know the exceeding greatness of the power toward us who believe. The same power that accomplished the resurrection and ascension of Jesus is there for us, is there for you as believers. And that is what Paul wants us to see and to experience in our lives. Because the life of a Christian from the very conversion, the first conversion to his final glorification is driven and empowered by the very same amazing working of God's power. And that's just something to reflect on and be very grateful for. That the very same working of God's power that brought Jesus out of the death and into heaven is there at work in your life from the moment you receive faith to the very end of your life. And what this means practically, Paul is then going to work out in chapter 2. The close connection between our text and chapter 2 is especially clear if you just skip ahead to 2 verse 6, where Paul says, And God raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Sit together with Christ in the heavenly places. When Jesus was raised from the grave, we were raised from our death, our death in trespasses and sins, as Paul calls it. And then when Jesus was seated at God's right hand, we too were given the same glorious life and heavenly task. We often say we have been Raised with Christ into a new life. But now take the next step. You also have been raised with Christ to a heavenly life and glory. And that is not just a nice idea. This is and ought to be reality in our lives. It should be the reality in our lives if we profess to be Christians. That's what we are saying when we call ourselves Christians. We are closely united with Christ. So much that the resurrection and ascension of Jesus define, they are the driving forces of our entire life. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul calls us or invites us to make a comparison between two workings, two energias. Which of these is at work in you? In which direction are you propelled? Are you propelled by the Spirit? who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's one direction you could be propelled into. And if this spirit drives your life, then you follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That is, you, you float downstream along with all the sinful ideas and meaningful concerns of this fallen world to a certain death and without hope. 
That is one power that could be at work in your life. But if, on the other hand, you're empowered by the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and placed him at God's right hand, if that is the, the energia, the working that pushes your life forward, then your life is growing heavenward and you follow the path that Jesus went out of the spiral of sin into a whole new way of living and ultimately into heavenly glory. And this is the core reality of our Christian life. Jesus has new and heavenly life and he rules from his heavenly home. That life is also our life. That home is also our home. They are ours now already because we belong to him as a body belongs to the head. They become ours more and more as the Spirit enables us to grow in Christ's likeness. And they will be fully ours when we finally also receive a glorified body, a fully spiritual life, and will reign together with Christ over a new creation. And so Paul prayed at the beginning of his letter for the Ephesian church, and he basically says, if only God made you see this, if only he made you see and realize the great power that is at work in you. If only you would experience the working of that power and understand in what direction it steers your life. Then you would live that life now already as lights shining in a dark world, showing the glory of the new world and living as those whose home is the heavenly places with your focus and your hope in Jesus Christ, the glorious King over all, at the right hand of glory. That was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And that is also my prayer for you, that you may see the reality, not only of Christ's ascension, but of your ascension along with Christ, and that that is reality. Now, today on the Lord's Day, and in the week of work, that is before you. Amen.